0: You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.
1: This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Today, my guest is Scott Stump. Scott is the president and CEO of the National Desert Storm War Memorial Association, which is working to build the National Desert Storm and Desert Shield Memorial on the National Mall in D.C. Scott, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Gail. It's an honor.
1: I was having breakfast with a mutual acquaintance of ours who's also a former military person, and we started talking about Scott and your efforts to build a memorial to Desert Storm Desert Shield on the National Mall in DC. And I Remember vividly when I was in college, I think I was a second or third year, I think it was second year of college, and I was in my sorority house, and the news broke out that we were fighting back against Uh, Saddam Hussein rolling into Kuwait and taking over a sovereign nation. And that was truly the first time in my lifetime that I was plugged into military action to that degree. And I think part of it was because I was in college, so a lot of my contemporaries were of military age. And certainly at that time, people thought from media reports that this was going to be a long slog, that we would lose many young men and American women, and it was something that was on the top of everyone's mind. Take us back to that moment. How were you involved in the buildup to that moment?
0: Sure, first of all, I want to uh, thank you for not saying you're in grade school, as so many people do, because (laughs) then, then I start feeling really, really old. Uh, but, but you know, you know, you bring up a great point, Gail, that, uh, you know, people really do have a tendency to um, not remember the fact that there were some very dire predictions uh, leading up to this. You know, we had uh, responded pretty quickly with Desert Shield. Uh, I believe it was August 7th, which was literally five days after the, uh, the, the invasion of the Iraqi forces into uh, Kuwait. Uh, and that, you know, that led into a, you know, prolonged, you know, six, seven month buildup, which was also um to shield the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, but really entire the, the entire Arabian Peninsula was protected so that uh, you know Saddam Hussein and his forces could not continue on and, and occupy the entire uh, peninsula. But it was a very tenuous time. it was very uncertain. You know, we weren't that far removed from Vietnam and there was still a certain feel in the air of are we up to this? you know the media, uh, you know, God love them, but they weren't the most supportive. And I was a, a Marine Corps infantryman. Actually, I was in the reserves and I was finishing my last course in college when I got the letter and wow. said, you have five five days to report. And, oh, by the way, make sure you have enough gear for, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months. So it was very uncertain. Um, you know, we fully well expected that we were going to, you know, there are going to be a lot of us that were not going to be returning home. So it was a very uncertain time uh, that weighed heavily on everybody's mind.
1: What inspired you to join the Marine Corps?
0: Well, I always was up for a challenge. I, I still am, I guess. And you know, I, I hear some people out there say, "Well, you know, there are people that don't even know anybody that ever served." And you know, that really wasn't my case. I've got um, my family on on my dad's side. You know, they all served. You know, World War II veteran uh, veterans. My dad was in uh, Korea. My mom's side goes all the way back to General Washington's uh, George Washington's army. So it was just kind of the natural thing to do. I wanted to serve. And to, uh, to be challenged in particular with the, uh, with the Marine Corps, I, I don't think I would have been a good Air Force guy.
1: <laughs> well, back to what was going on on the ground at that time. I think a lot of people get confused between the more recent Iraq conflict with the conflict that went on with Saddam Hussein and Kuwait. He was obviously a terrible, terrible person, one of the worst leaders that you could imagine for a country. Uh, but so he he mistreated his people terribly. And that was contained mostly in Iraq at that point. Um, certainly there were incursions into other countries through, um, you know, secretive operations and things resembling that. But take us to that time when Saddam Hussein rolled into Kuwait and we know of mutual people whose parents fought um, against it. They were part of the Kuwaiti uh, government and they found themselves in very dire circumstances.
0: Well, you're you're so right, Gail, and, and literally it was overnight, um, you know, people not to get into the diplomatic Uh, you know, process. But, you know, they were assured several days before by, um, you know, Saddam that he was not going to uh, uh, invade. You know, he was using the excuse of the whole oil thing. I mean, it was just really a a, a very, um, just a strange time. I'm sure that it was just an absolutely uh, surreal experience I've spoken with. And have a number of kuwaiti friends who um you know it was just a surreal experience something that they just never could have imagined and this gentleman had designs uh on making kuwait that you know really officially the 19th province uh, and you and i have a mutual young friend who was born during the occupation who has a distinction of having two birth certificates one that says he was born in iraq and then the other one says he was born in kuwait so this wow. was serious business serious business and if we would not have you know, assembled and led this coalition uh, to liberate these people. I mean, I can't even imagine what that country would be like
1: today. And when Saddam and his forces went into Kuwait, what did they do to the people that were opposing them?
0: Well, and I think that's probably one of the things that most people have no appreciation for is that, you know, you know, I, I hear things like the hundred hour war, oh, it was just this lightning fast. Well the ground phase was absolutely, but there's a long buildup. And could you imagine being a Kuwaiti citizen under this this daily occupation, the raping, the pillage, the murders. I mean there were thousands and thousands of Kuwaitis who were slaughtered. Uh, As a result of this occupation, it was it was you know I think that people kind of have a tendency to gloss over and think oh it was just little you know this little incursion was over with in a blink of an eye Uh, that was really not the case.
1: It ended up being a much quicker victory than the media predicted and the naysayers uh, predicted. I would say part of that was obviously the awesome force that we had, and I am one of the fiercest advocates of our military servicemen and women. Uh, George H.W. Bush just recently passed away, and there was a lot of reflection on his time as president. Do you have any thoughts on how his leadership was something that helped guarantee that it was a shorter American conflict to roll back Uh, Saddam Hussein and his forces from Kuwait and restore sovereignty to the Kuwaiti people?
0: You know, Gail, it was all about leadership. It was leadership from President Bush, Secretary James Baker, even had Defense Secretary uh, Dick Cheney at the time. You know, these gentlemen were competent. They went about this the right way and they were committed. Uh, You even heard um, some of the old footage of President Bush saying, we're not gonna allow this to be another Vietnam and he didn't and i also have to always credit the generals in the field if you think about it gail all of those senior leaders in the field uh they were young officers in vietnam and i am firmly convinced and nobody can can, you know can tell me otherwise i I believe this they were not going to allow us to go through what they went through the first time and they're going to go in Take care of business and get out. And you know, you, you made another uh, point just a few minutes ago about a little bit of the confusion about what went on previously and then the subsequent actions over in the Middle East after 9 11. This was all about, and I always ask somebody, you know, well, tell me what the mission is. And a lot of people don't realize it was to liberate Kuwait, period. It wasn't to invade Iraq, it wasn't to depose Saddam Hussein. The U.N. mandate clearly stated, and that's what our mission was, was to liberate the people of Kuwait.
1: And there was a coalition of many countries from different places around the world that joined with the United States to try and accomplish that mission of freeing Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's, uh, you know, torturous treatment of the Kuwaiti government and people.
0: It sure was. In fact, it was uh, really an unprecedented um, 34 countries from five different continents came together. uh, And at its bare essence, they did the right thing. They came together and did the right thing. And I always like to to point out to somebody, if you don't think that's amazing, take a look at today's environment. You can't even get 34 senators in the same room to agree (laughs) on anything. Let, let alone actually accomplish anything, Gail. I mean, it was a phenomenal feat. And that's one of the things that this memorial is going to highlight are these positive aspects, like the coming together uh, and doing the right thing. You know, regardless of your religion, regardless of your culture, your language, this was the country at its best, but also the world at its best.
1: When you returned home from this victory in Kuwait, opposing the Iraqi forces, you were given the opportunity to participate in recognition of the successful mission, maybe one of the most successful outcomes of any United States military intervention in in American history. What was your reaction to people asking you to participate in this type of prideful um, recognition of the effort and the success? us that you all made in Desert Shield, Desert Storm?
0: Well, Gail, I think I speak on behalf of probably, you know, 99% of the other veterans. I can certainly say from my unit, we felt this way. Uh, We we really just wanted to go home. We felt like we did nothing more than what we were asked to do. We did our job. Uh, We were, quite frankly, you know, very uncomfortable with the idea of being recognized you know, we didn't think we were anything special. And I remember we pitched such a fit over it that the uh, commanding officer assembled us in um, in formation and he basically gave us a dressing down. He really let us have it. And he said, look, you're doing this parade, you're doing it for the people. This is for the people, it is not for you. And I didn't understand what he meant until we got to the end of the parade. It was in this little town and there's everybody out there, flags everywhere. And he gets done with his remarks. We're standing in front of the uh, reviewing stand And I can't tell you one thing the man said until the very end when he said, and I dedicate this parade to the Vietnam veterans that never got one. And at that point, we all knew that, you know, it was worth it, that we were glad that we did that if it was able to, you know, I know you never really truly right the wrongs that were occurred, you know, that occurred previously, but at least maybe that was the start of a healing process.
1: That gives me chills hearing about that. That is so beneficial, I think, not only to the the Vietnam veterans who never heard thanks, but also were spit on and reviled and lots of lies were said about them. But the idea that it was a healing moment, too, and you went from uh, I, I would say the military was looked down on in some in some areas, obviously not with a lot of families that had people serving or had you know, a history of military service. But I think there was a, a shift, perhaps, at that moment from the way the military had been treated previously to more of an understanding, thank you for your service. Did you sense that as well?
0: You know, Gail, absolutely. And that's one of the things that the the, the story that this memorial is going to get across. And of course, it's a challenging um, aspect of the memorial. How do you uh, display this, as we have come to call it, the pivot, and it's a pivot in The public treatment, you know, the general public, how they treat and view the military. And it's a reestablishment of that relationship. And, you know, I'll I'll tell you, you, you mentioned a very frequently used term, thank you for your service, that that term did not exist prior to 1991. And it's a direct result of operation desert shield and desert storm and it's a legacy that continues and, and i feel sorry for you know when i'm out with my wife i really feel sorry for a lot of people she'll see anybody wearing a hat thank you for your service you know that just that just didn't happen and you know it's not even just those in uniform but it's those that serve and, and it's a continuing legacy and a lot of the young people kind of take the way that they're treated for granted but i'll tell you you know, people were not giving up first class seats on airplanes in the late 80s. They were not saying thank you for your service or buying you a beer in the airport. So it fundamentally changed that that perception and treatment of the military and those that have served. And I'm happy to say that 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 legacy continues. And I hope it always does.
1: Being a native Washingtonian. Being a native Washingtonian, I've seen a lot of disputes about what should be placed on the mall, the idea that it's getting cluttered, that we shouldn't be adding more things, that part of what makes a mall beautiful is that there are not too many buildings or monuments on it. So I'm curious, when you went through the permitting process, and and I understand that you have received permission to actually build the memorial, did you encounter any of that opposition?
0: You know gail we heard it um we, we did hear it from time to time and, and we agree i mean you know we don't want to uh, have a proliferation of a lot of things out there to where it's it's too busy and i just want to make just one thing clear for all of your um listeners and your audience is that we're not technically on the mall um we are in a, a, on a parcel that is adjacent to what's called the reserve or the area where you know you can't build very close to the Lincoln Memorial as well as the Vietnam Memorial. We're very respectful of that, but this this particular site is not quote on the mall because Congress established the rule back in 2003 to where there's no more building within the reserve. So we, we feel that that's a very, um, we feel the gravity of that responsibility to do this right and to be respectful of the surroundings as well as, uh, you know, the existing commemorative works. So, Uh, Although it's, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's on the mall. Well, it's it's close to the mall, but it's not technically on the mall.
1: That is very helpful. That's such a good correction. I think that's an important thing for people to realize. As we look at the area that the memorial is going to be placed, As you mentioned, there's already a World War II Memorial, there's a Vietnam Veterans Memorial, there's a Korean War Memorial, there's the Lincoln War Memorial. When you look at the artistry and the message that these current memorials send out, uh, think about the World War II Memorial, the vision of it is is kind of a round um, uh, image with wreaths on it and to me, it reminds me a lot of sort of a Roman idea, uh, in, in consistency or with consistency to the rest of a lot of the Greek style buildings on the, or no government buildings around the National Mall. When we look at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, it's a very different visual uh, that people encounter. It's this black wall, if, if people haven't gone to see it, you should absolutely go to see it. It's a very uh, dark wall with the names of the casualties engraved on the wall. And they're very iconic photos of survivors and relatives of those etched in the wall, uh, putting their hands up against the names of their loved ones or their comrades in arms. And I'm curious, could you describe for us what the National Desert Storm and Desert Shield War Memorial will look like, and what is the meaning that should be conveyed by the artistry behind the design?
0: that's a that's a very um, a, a great question. it's It's a difficult question because we're right now we're in the throes of working through the design process. and I'll just say and give our team a tremendous amount of credit. We have some wonderful, Professionals, I'm talking 30-year professionals in the landscape architecture world as well as the architecture world. Uh, we brought some artists in for some input, and as I mentioned earlier, Gail, you know this 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 memorial is going to be unique in that although remembering the the fallen is of utmost importance. It's not going to be a place of mourning like you know Vietnam. We have these positive messages to to convey. Uh, and on a personal note, I've got a cousin whose name is on the Vietnam uh, Memorial. You go there, and it's not what I would ex- you know say is a real uplifting experience, other than you can say, well, there's fifty eight thousand names on here. Thank goodness there aren't sixty thousand or more. Whereas ours, the challenge is being able to tell that story, the unity of the coalition coming together you know, the liberation aspect, this was all about liberation. And, you know, our location is very close to Lincoln, we think there's some symbolism with, you know, the greatest liberator in in, in our country's history. This was about liberating Kuwait ties in very, very well. So we're working through those aspects. And I can't tell you exactly, you know, and and I'm not an expert with you know, neoclassical or the Greek revival, any of that. But I can tell you that I I, I think it's something that is going to be people are going to outwardly appreciate, and our hope is that they'll outwardly appreciate it and be wowed by it and want to come in and learn the story, and they're going to absorb the story. So, you know, we're building this not just for today or next year, but we're looking at how are people going to connect with this and learn the story 50 and 100 years from now.
1: That is excellent. If people want to find out more about your effort and hopefully donate to the effort, I assume that this is privately funded. Is that correct?
0: It's one hundred percent privately funding. We're taking no federal funds for it. You're absolutely correct.
1: If people want to learn about how to contribute or find out more information about the proposed memorial or find out information about you, where can they go?
0: They can go to N D S W M. so n d s w m dot o r g. We also have a very active uh, Facebook and social media presence and uh, We'd love to hear from y'all.
1: Scott, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Gail, and thanks so much for your interest and and support for the memorial and and keep up your great work.
1: This is Gail Trotter. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter or Instagram, subscribe to my YouTube station, support this podcast on Patreon. I also wanna thank Trio Caliente for the music. This is Gail Trotter, right in DC.
0: You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter.